So for the past number of weeks, I, I, I know because I looked, but you all have been considering the spiritual disciplines of study, worship, fellowship, and confession, and how providential that you would study such things during a time when the Lord has brought particular testing to the bridge. Uh, he has prepared you for such a time as this. Uh, and he has brought you to rich cisterns of worship and prayer and confession to sustain you by his grace. And whatever he gives or takes away, Bridge, he will not withhold any good thing from you. He is with you, and you can trust him. We can trust him. Today, I would love to uh, turn our attention to Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Um, 1 Corinthians was a letter written to the church about 20 years after the death of Jesus. And the fundamental issue in Corinth that Paul wrote to address was the issue of division in the church. And so really, 1 Corinthians, the entire letter, is fundamentally an appeal for unity. In the chapter preceding today's text, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul explains that true wisdom looks like sacrifice. In other words, Godly wisdom looks like laying down your life for the good of another. And in chapter three, he shifts his focus to those who are leading the local church. Now, the logic of the cross, let me explain that a little bit, but the logic of the cross, what Paul says the world calls foolishness, Jesus on the cross, his death and resurrection for us. But that logic had not yet shaped the Corinthian view of church leadership. So Corinthian Christians were looking for church leaders who were wise in the same way that the intellectual elites in Corinth were wise. And Paul tailors this portion of his letter to correct that error. So the question that Paul addresses in this is, if church leaders are not called to be wise according to this age, as he says in chapter 2, then what are they called to be? Paul's answer is simple, but it's rich. Church leaders are called to be slaves and servants of God. And he illustrates this for us through three analogies. Number one, church leaders are gardeners in God's field. Number two, church leaders are construction workers in God's building. And number three, church leaders are servants in God's temple. So let's just take some time to consider this first analogy. Church leaders are gardeners in God's field. So just to set the context, the Corinthian church had been planted by Paul. And then Apollos arrives to continue what Paul has started. Therefore, there were some people in the church who had been taught and mentored and discipled by Paul. And there were some in the church who had been taught, mentored, and discipled by Apollos. But instead of everyone just being happy that they had come to know the truth of the gospel through these men, the relationships created loyalties, which then became a basis for a power play. Factions had formed around these teachers, and there was subsequent comparison, and it was tearing the church apart. It was destroying their unity. It was ruining their unity as a body, and Paul has a particular response to their respective human allegiances. And so let's look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. 
I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Why does Paul use what with Apollos and Paul? Because he obviously knew who they were. <laughs> he knew who he was. I think that by using a low-status vocabulary here and asking what are Apollos and Paul, he draws, he draws our attention to the purpose of a church leader, not just their gifts and their traits. Paul says to the, Corinth, to the Corinthians, here is why it makes no sense for you to divide into camps over Apollos and me. We're gardeners in the vineyard. God is the field owner. Paul would have known that in the Corinthian mind that field hands were not among the intellectual elites. In an honor culture, the servants are not the honorable ones, and that's the context of Corinth. It was an honor culture. They're not the ones that Corinth is going to look to for wisdom. Only the field owner would have been seen as the wise one. He is the one truly worthy of honor and praise. So Paul says, Corinthians, the leaders and ministers of this local body are gardeners and servants in God's field. If you knew that, then you wouldn't put them on a pedestal. In and of themselves, Paul and Apollos are not the source of life for the church. Their abilities are of no avail apart from the direction and the empowerment of God. Gardeners and field hands water and weed, but they cannot bring life out of the ground. Therefore, Paul says, it's foolish for us to pick our favorite leaders and then pit them against one another. <coughs> Apollos and I are one, he says, and our respective efforts are a single, collaborative, agricultural project under the authority of God, the owner of the vineyard. And when you make us into competitors, it's destructive and dangerous. It creates disunity in the church. So Paul is entreating the Corinthians and us here today, us here today as 21st century Christians, to place all of our trust in the field owner. It is God who makes the gospel word take root and produce this, this community of living faith. In the same way that Eve was taken out of Adam's side during his slumber, the church was born out of the side of Christ at his death. God, the field owner, is the source of life for the church, not its leaders. And so we do well to trust him in his provision. But trusting, trusting God does not, be, does not mean being passive any more than a farmer who cultivates a field of crops is passive. Farmers work in the shadeless heat they engage in hard, diligent work of tilling, seeding, watering, waiting, and so it should be for those who lead the church. So it should be for us. So practically, what does this look like? As God's living field, we should actively trust our God, the field owner, by availing ourselves to all the nourishment that God has offered us here. Now I'm offering a few, and a few things, a few places of nourishment, and these will sound familiar. I hope they do. I trust they do. 
What nourishments do we need to avail ourselves to as we are planted here, as we are gardening here? Number one, God's word, the Bible. We should read and study his word. Isaiah likens God's word to rain that comes down from heaven and brings life out of the ground. Just avail yourself to the imagery, the vineyard that's planted here and the rain of God's word brings life. So if we are God's vineyard, we need regular watering, regular study, meditation, memorization, preaching and teaching of his words to make sure that we're properly hydrated, as it were. Number two, communion, the Lord's Supper. At the table, Jesus offers himself as our food. We are nourished in grace as we feed upon Christ by faith, and our union and communion with him is confirmed, and then our mutual love and fellowship for one another is renewed. Consider this, it's just a small aside, but as you take communion, you're not necessarily taking communion just for yourself, but for your brother and sister next to you. It's a, food, it's a table for the body, for all of you. So take, take of his body and blood and, and consider that I'm not just doing this for me, doing this for us. But a healthy vineyard needs food as well as water. Number three, confession and repentance. Regular acknowledgement of our sin before God and one another is like pulling weeds. As we confess our prideful competition, our jealousy, our greed, our strife, our anger, and as we turn to Christ and trust, we become a healthier, more flourishing vineyard of God's displayed grace. Number four, living amidst the saints, living in the local body of Christ with which you are covenanted. Healthy vineyards thrive because they stay in the soil where God has planted them. Now, the bridge Montrose is not Hotel California. You know, you, you, you can check out and leave. Like, you don't, you know, you're not, you're not bound here forever. But if God has you here, root where he has you. I know in Houston, where it's a transient city, three months, six months, one year, five years, 10 years, maybe you don't know how long you're going to be here, Regardless of that, plant where God has you. Root where God has you. Serve and be served by the greater vineyard. It's for your care and for each other's care. You will thrive if you do so. And finally, prayer. Through communion with the triune God, we're abiding in Christ, the true vine, and submitting ourselves to be pruned by the vine dresser. Again, feel free to avail yourself to all the imagery here. We ask, trust, plead, praise in union with him. So if you're a Christian, don't starve yourself from these provisions. Don't uproot yourself unnecessarily from the work that he's doing in you through these things and in this community. Like the psalmist says, as we abide in Jesus, planted by streams of water, he will nourish us. We will grow tall like oak trees with deep roots and choice fruits for all to enjoy. And we will be able to withstand storms, and drought, fierce winds, dark nights. The church is God's field. We are the gardeners.
Well, let's look at the second analogy. Church leaders are construction workers in God's building. Let's continue reading in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become, a manif- will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul shifts analogies from a field to a building, from a gardener to a construction worker, and he compares himself to a skilled building contractor who has carefully laid a foundation while sharing the ongoing work with other subcontractors. Now, that's the end of my vocabulary with build. I don't know any other vocabulary but those words. But he likens the church leadership to construction workers with God the Father as the owner of the property, providing every grace for every builder and every grace for anything to be built. And as all of, all of this is built on the foundation of a crucified Jesus. So, if we are construction workers, if we are building with God, building this building, how should church leaders build God's building? Well, I believe one of Paul's letters to the church in Ephesus could be helpful. In Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11, it says this, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into every way, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave the church leaders that were purposed to help build God's building by equipping the church for the work of ministry. The word equip here means to supply what is lacking. Thusly, church leaders are construction workers who care for and provide for others so that they can join in the construction of God's building. And this was extremely radical instruction given the context of Corinth because what was actually being built in, in Corinth was the elites were building up their own social standing, their own personal honor. They were supplying themselves with their own followers, their own fans. It was self-aggrandizement. They were constructing buildings of personal glory. And so Paul contrasts this by showing us that wise church leaders seek to equip others to construct God's building. It's giving to others what is necessary to carry out God's mission in the world. 
and a well-equipped church will mimic and fulfill much of what the leadership is called to do. All of this produces a, a very unique body. It's not a body that watches passively as Paul and the other leaders build it alone. It's a living body that builds itself up in love through service, care, teaching, rebuke, and encouragement until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And so as God's commissioned bricklayers and masons in God's building, we have work to do. But what does the work look like? Well, I think we could talk about that for a very long time. Let me offer just four questions that we all could be asking ourselves from time to time in light of Ephesians 4. Number one, am I, with questions that we can ask ourselves and one another, am I encouraging a unified faith in Christ Jesus in this church? Number two, am I speaking the truth of Jesus and his gospel to this church? Number three, am I caring for people and taking responsibility for their growth? Number four, am I purposing my work to be for the good of others, not just myself? If so, I, I, I would say that we're strengthening God's building, and if not, then we're probably building on something that isn't Jesus. Now let's engage a, a particularly difficult part of this text. Paul says that there will be a day when God will test and judge all the work that we've done by way of a fiery building inspection. I, did, I know one more word, sorry, I forgot. Where we have built with gold, silver, and precious stones the gospel of Jesus crucified, there will be refinement and reward. But where we've built with wood, grass, and straw, fads of human wisdom, ergo, self-aggrandizement, there will be a consuming fire and we will suffer loss, as Paul says. However, this is not a loss of salvation. The word for reward here is like wages paid to workers who do good and lasting work. And the word for loss here is like fines imposed on builders who do inadequate and temporal work. But Paul is not talking about the fate of individual souls of the final judgment, but about God's scrutiny of the building work of leaders in church communities. So I do wanna make this clear very briefly. When Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, he justified all who were in union with him. So now justification, the state of being right before a holy God, is not by works, but by grace through faith in Christ. I wanna make that clear. But even so, our construction work of God's building will still be tested in the end, and so we must be thoughtful and intentional in how we're building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ crucified. The church is God's building, we are construction workers. Let's look at the final analogy. Church leaders are servants in God's temple. Let's read verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now Paul's final analogy could be understood as a development of the previous one. The church building is not just any building, it's the temple of God, it's the place where God's spirit dwells. Now those who damage the unity of the community are interfering with God's presence. 
those people will incur judgment. And it's important for us to note that there's a difference between those who build the church with inappropriate material and those who actively destroy the community. The first is saved with singed eyebrows. <laughs> the other is destroyed. God will not look likely, lightly on those who seek to hurt, to injure his bride, the church. Do you not know that you're the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells in you? The yous here are plural. Do you not know that you are a temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Paul paints an image of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the gathered community of the temple and the church leaders are servants in that temple. So what, what do you think might mark a temple servant? Excuse me. What do you think might mark a temple servant? Holiness. Let me use a, a more modern illustration from N.T. Wright. Church leaders are waiters in God's restaurant. The church is God's restaurant. The pastors and leaders are waiters. Now, how could waiters and servants be holy? They're there to serve others, not themselves. They listen and respond. They care and they welcome one another. Anyone and everyone is welcome in the restaurant temple. Good waiters make sure you have what is most needed. Good waiters bring you good food that they didn't cook. And when you enjoy that food, they're delighted to draw your attention to the cook and not themselves. You will not go back to a restaurant with bad food and great waiters. <laughs> you just won't. But you will go back to a restaurant with great food and pretty good waiters, average waiters. <laughs> I do trust that the staff and elders at the bridge have served you well. I trust that we at Sojourn Heights, the leaders of Sojourn Heights have served them well. And I also know that we have dropped plates and brought you cold food. Waiters can ruin your dining experience, but their job really is to serve unnoticed. The quality of the food is what truly matters, so don't glory in the waiters. Glory in the cook, glory in the owner. The spiritual elite in Corinth made people come to them. But servants, servants, gardeners, construction workers, they go to people. And never was that more, never was that more gloriously experienced when Jesus left heaven and came to serve us in his death. He was the vineyard owner who became the gardener, the building owner who became the bricklayer, the master chef who became the waiter, and he himself is the vine, the building, and the good food. Jesus, who was the only one who deserved to be put on a pedestal and be aggrandized, was put on a cross and mocked as a fake king. The one seated in the highest heaven allowed others to put him in the deepest grave. And on the cross, he died for all our selfish pursuits of ego and self-fulfillment, and thereby, in his resurrection, became the foundation upon which the church is built, and the doors of that vineyard building now and his resurrection and us welcomed in have been swung wide open to welcome the nations, to look upon the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. Through him, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, by the resurrection and ascension of Christ, we, the church, get to be made who we were, get to be who we were made to be, gardeners, bricklayers, servants, waiters, in God's house. Let's close here. These final verses of of chapter three. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. There's a a Greco-Roman philosophy touted a particular maxim that said, the wise man possesses all things. But Paul declares to the church and its leaders, all things are yours. So whether Paul, Apollos, or Peter, these leaders that have been given to you, church in Corinth, church, the bridge Montrose, all things are yours. Life, death, present, future, all of it in Christ, all of it. So again, Paul asks, why are you saying Why are you saying, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos? He's saying, Paul and Apollos were given to you. They belong to you. So Bridge, you're not the followers of Heath Haynes or Kurt or Andy. They are yours. Don't be deceived, don't boast in mere human beings. The point is not to decide which pastor or leader you follow. Don't glory in Andy, don't glory in Heath or Kurt or Travis. Any of the leaders here at the bridge, they're servants. Glory in Jesus, glory in God, glory in God the Holy Spirit. He's the owner, he's the source. So in this upside down community, we're going to esteem the lowly and the community is right to to esteem its leaders. And the esteemed are right to lower themselves. Do you have any power? Do you have any privilege? Do you have any honor? Do you have any gifts? Surrender them to the good of others and be conformed to Christ who gave up his riches to make us rich. We aren't just a pretty building to live in alone. The purpose of our building, the purpose of this church, the purpose of our planting is for God to be glorified in our midst and for our neighbors and friends to be invited into this beautifully adorned temple. Built on Jesus, adorned with you, you precious saints, nourished by God, maturing into the fullness of Christ, and by his grace, not only are we field hands, servants, and masons, but we are beloved children. And we live in the family of the maker of heaven and earth. We're tending his vineyard so it will flourish, building his house so it will be beautiful, serving inside of it so that all will be cared for. This is a wonderful temple vineyard where the nations can come to know the true triune God through and in his people. And we wanna labor faithfully, 
see God's work through us stand the test of time. So it makes no sense to choose between camps, choose between teachers. We're all in the kingdom of Jesus, and as we tend, build, and serve, we participate in the reality of God's dominion. And thusly, we're set free from petty scrambling for human boasting and approval. We all belong to God in Christ, and as we glory in him, or as we glory in him, it will heal all our divisions. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in your son. We thank you that we have been invited into union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit according to your perfect will, Father. I thank you for making the bridge Montrose a beautiful place for nations, neighbors, to come and know you, to come and follow you. And I pray that you would grant us, Lord, great faith and trust and humility to continue to build and till your vineyard. You've given us gifts, you've given us leaders, you've given us talents, you've given us graces. And Lord, we pray that you would make us faithful to use those so that other people would look in and glory in you. Would you continue to make the bridge Montrose this beautifully adorned place of worship, love, proclamation, and enjoyment. Lord, help us. We need you. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.